Judgment Month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood 13 men whose names are difficult to pronounce. <laughs> in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then... Thirteen men, whose names are hard to pronounce, um, with the Levites, at the end of verse 7, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. <clears throat> then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. <clears throat> so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate the great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in the booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and, their, and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and, the, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at, at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed <coughs> not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. And I'll pray. Lord, we thank you again for this immense privilege that we don't begin, I, I believe, to comprehend. I know I don't, that you have spoken to us through your word. And that we have here in our hands the very words of God for all mankind. And that we have the privilege of hearing you, knowing your will, knowing you personally through your word. And I pray that we would hear your voice and that we would yield God in faith and love, dependence and obedience to you and what we hear you speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, for those that are just joining us, principally the new students from His Hill, we've been working through Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. And now in chapter 8, um, the walls are, are built, 
And Nehemiah has been um, taking um, <coughs> an account of who the true Jewish people are so that they can set the stage for occupying the city, inhabiting the city with 10% of the total inhabitants of the land. But now he's moving from the city being secure and stable as a geographical area to the hearts of the people and we're seeing a spiritual renewal with them, principally around worship and the Word of God. And so this is a very significant chapter because of the Word of God and the priority that it's having for reestablishing these people where they need to be. And obviously the application here speaks for itself that for God's people to be functioning, for any society to be functioning as God intended, the Word of God must be front and center. I don't know a lot about history. I don't, uh, don't make any claim to being a historian. But I think it'd be pretty fair to say that when you look at any society around the world from, from all of time, the further removed from God's word they become, the more pagan and ungodly and demonic you see their societies. That's always been the case. I just, for the fun of it, um, the, I, I um, did some, some research this week and what Cortez found when he came into Mexico and, um, and, and encountered the Aztec Empire. It is astounding. It was so evil that you couldn't even talk about it with children in the room. It would give them nightmares. It was pure, unadulterated evil. Now, I know the modern take on history is that Cortez just came in and slaughtered everybody. If we had seen what he had seen, we would have wanted that done. Pure evil. So much so that the, that the surrounding tribes, Indian tribes, were thankful that Cortez was there, and 200,000 Indians joined in with Cortez to stop the evil that was taking place. That is, that is just one sampling of really around the world what has taken place in the history of mankind as they have departed from the Word of God. You can look at the Druids of of Ireland, you can look at the, at the war people of, of Scotland, you can look at Germany before the, the um, Romans conquered, you can look at the Vikings, you can go across Russia, and in every instance what brought these people away from the demonic practices was the Word of God coming in through missionaries who were willing to risk, willing to risk their lives to bring peace, to bring salvation to bring forgiveness of sin, to dispel the darkness and bring people into light. That is the explanation for civilization. It has never been the substituting of the one true God for multiple gods, or even rejecting the concept of deity for materialism. It has never been and never will that civilization will be built off of what is fundamentally a lie. And the truth is, there is one true God. And the only way to know good, personally or in a society, is in a relationship with the only one who is good, and that is God. Israel is no exception. What we're going to see here is a powerful and, and encouraging chapter in Israel's life where they come back to God's Word. They reorder their society according to God's Word. And, <clears throat> but even before we get out of Nehemiah, we're going to see that they're already departing. As significant as chapter 8 is, by the time of chapter 13, they're already starting to slip away. Back in 
earlier than this, the very reason they're in dispersion, and we talked about this when we started looking at Ezra some months ago, the reason they were in dispersion is because they abandoned God and his word. You can go back to 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34 um, and see how God used a man named Josiah to bring them back to the centrality of God's word. And it was only brief, but Josiah, a good king, probably the best king that Israel ever had, they said no other king that Israel ever had ordered his ways as completely as he did according to the word of God. That would include David. Josiah didn't even know that there was a Bible in existence. But there was still a temple. It was full of gods, full of all kinds of, of spiritual adultery. And Josiah, as a good boy of eight years old, by the time he was 18, he started saying, we're going to clean up this temple and get rid of all these pagan gods. And in the process, they found the Bible. And a priest brought it to Josiah and said, we have found the word of God. Let me read from it. And Josiah tore his clothes when he heard what God's word said because it exposed how sinful they were. And then he gathered all the men of Israel, all the leaders of Israel, and had them hear God's word being read. You can see this is happening again now in Nehemiah. Ezra did the same thing. And they made a covenant with God that they would put away all the false gods. And they went through the whole nation of Israel and destroyed all the idolatry they could find. But it was too little too late. Because even though Josiah forced these reforms on the people, the people's hearts were far from God. And God knew that the only thing that would rid them of that idolatry was to go into captivity. And so 70 years of captivity to break them of their idolatry. That brings us now to chapter 8. And all the people are gathered as one man. How rare is that? Complete unity of a nation. Something has to happen to cause that to happen. It's not natural. We've just finished celebrating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Remember the unity? Remember all the signs everywhere, God bless America? how we are all standing together as one. Something has to happen in a society to bring that kind of unity. And here, it is the desperate situation they are in. So even though the walls have been rebuilt, the temple is being rebuilt, things are moving in the right way, <coughs> Nehemiah is later going to say, God, we are still slaves. And they are desperate for the Lord. And understanding how desperate they are, as one nation, they are gathered together. As much as I love our country, and as much as I believe that it is a unique and, and God-ordained um, country, and that there is an exceptionalism to this country because it is so unique in its history, it troubles me deeply when we go through times of great tragedy and I hear our leaders saying, because we are Americans, we will prevail. And I think, oh, God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We'll get through this, chanting, USA, USA, USA. Not Jesus. Not God save us. God have mercy on us. But even in the desperation and the brokenness, crying out, we are something. We are nothing apart from the grace of God.
And these people now are seeing that. And they're crying out to God. They are hungry for the word of God as a nation. And they take the initiative and say, read God's word to us. We need to hear it. So the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Get the Bible and read to us. And Ezra was only more than happy to. He was a man who had dedicated his whole life, you remember, to studying God's word and to teaching others. Can you imagine? This couldn't make a preacher happier. Give us the word. One time I've had the experience, it's never been repeated, where I was teaching somewhere and the students said, <coughs> we want more. We will have, let's have class in the afternoon so we can have more. And I'm going, wow. I mean, that, that is, you can't say anything better to a preacher, to a teacher. And that's what Ezra is hearing. Give us the word. And Ezra the priest brought the law. Ooh, the law. It's the word of God. So we hate that word law. And they weren't wanting legalism, and that's not what they're going to be hearing. They knew this is the word of God. And Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And this is going to go on for seven consecutive days. And he read from it, from the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, six hours, from six in the morning till six in the afternoon. I'm sorry, till, mid, till, till midday, six hours. Wow. Can you imagine? And they're standing much of that time. And he's just reading it. They couldn't get enough. In the presence of the women, the men, the women, and all who had understanding, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And it's just simply being read. They were hungry, desperate to hear God's word because they knew they were hearing God. They had a podium built that was high enough that everyone could see Ezra and hear him as he read big enough that 14 men, Ezra and 13 others, could stand there. We don't even know why they were standing there. I guess just giving their support and their affirmation for what was being read. In verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. They're not worshiping the book, but they're worshiping God who gave the book. And Ezra Bless the Lord, the great God. Bless him for what? I can only assume for giving us his word. It is other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the living word. The written word is the greatest gift this world has ever been given. There's no close second. It is so significant, that's why the early settlers in this country were committed to public education because they wanted all children to be literate so that they could read this book. That's why they were committed to public education, so that every child could have this book and read it for himself. When a child was learning the alphabet, every letter of the alphabet was sharing the Bible story. It gave the whole gospel as they just learned the alphabet. A is for Adam, who ate the apple, and they go on from there. And it's just that they were teaching these kids everything they did. They wanted these kids to know God and to know his word. 
They said, that's the core value of education, to be able to read this book. And Ezra is blessing God before he even begins to read. I can only assume that it's because he's thanking God, blessing God for the gift of his word. God has spoken. He has not left us in silence. What a great gift. Thirteen more men, separate from the other 13 that are mentioned, they will walk among the people, the crowd, with the Levites and give instruction and understanding into what they're hearing. But as the people begin to hear God's word, they cry out, amen and amen, and they bow their faces to the ground. Wouldn't that have been a sight? I read one or listened to a man giving a sermon on this text, and he said, can you imagine in this church if all the men left their chairs and got down in the aisles and bowed their faces to the ground before the presence of God? What a statement that would make. And you've got a whole nation at the very beginning of the Word of God being read fall on their faces. Clearly, these people see the book as being something more than authored by human beings. It is the very Word of God. There was a deep reverence for it. So the Levites, with their help and other thir- these other 13 men, they read from the book of the law, translating it from the, um, to give the sense so that they might understand the reading. The marginal reading in the New American Standard, instead of saying translating in verse 8, says they were explaining it, which is part of what the teacher does. Reads from the Word of God and makes sure that everybody is getting the basic understanding, the gist of what's being said. Well, that created a response. These hours of hearing God's Word, the sincerity of heart, the attentiveness that God had had placed in these people's hearts, and the response was one of great Sadness and grief. People were crying everywhere. Simply at the reading of God's Word. What were they reading to make them cry? What possibly did Ezra turn to in the law to, to, to elicit that kind of response where the Word is read and they're weeping and crying? Well, I think you could just turn to almost any page of Scripture because they have gotten so far away from God. So when they read, perhaps Ezra read from, from, um, from Deuteronomy 28, which is where probably Josiah was read from. And that's what Solomon was quoting when he, de- when he, when he dedicated the temple. That Deuteronomy 28 is a very significant passage. It really d- outlines the whole history of Israel where the blessings and curses are given, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And maybe they're going... Obviously, we understand what's happening to us because this is a fulfillment of God's covenant with his people. But maybe they just, he was reading from just the story of creation. Maybe he started with Genesis 1, how God created this world, and he created it good. And they look around them, and they see what they have made of God's good creation. And they know there's no one to blame but themselves. I don't know where Ezra read from. But I know when you've gotten this far away from God, any of God's word brings about a sense of, I've missed the boat. I am so far off course. Can I possibly get back to where I need to be? 
And so Nehemiah and Ezra have to tell the people, stop crying. This is a day of rejoicing. And so they turn their hearts to praising God and not just crying over their condition. So he said in verse 10, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet. You can put in parentheses tea. Um, I'm kidding. That's not in the Hebrew. <coughs> Should be, but it's not. I'm not kidding. Totally kidding. Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, when Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength, and we sing a song that has that phrase in it, I don't think he was talking about joy that God wants us to have. He's talking about God who is our joy. And when you have God, there's every reason to have joy. That's what he's saying. You have the Lord. You are not abandoned. Yeah, you, you walked away from God, but God has not walked away from you. You still have the Lord. He is still faithful to his covenant. He has not abandoned you. Do not be grieved. The Lord is your joy. The Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, stop your crying, for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And then from here they celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is a feast that simply commemorated the 40 years they spent wandering around in the wilderness, where they never had anything but temporary shelters. And so they were supposed to remember that every year for seven days they were to build a tent made out of branches and sleep out there with their entire family. Either on the rooftops, they had their flat roofs or the courtyard, and it was practiced from time to time, but it was never practiced on such a national basis where so many people were involved as they did at this time. And I believe that's what Ezra, Nehemiah meant when he says this was the greatest celebration of the Feast of Booths in the history of Israel because it was so consistently being practiced among the people. And again, that would have been a time to remember the goodness of God and not just to focus on their condition. So there are at least five things I think that we can get here about this, this passage, and then I want to make some other applications. Number one, the Word of God should be regarded with reverence. We don't worship it, but neither do we trivialize it. I came across a description of the Puritans and when they came to this country and their reverence for the word. And it's been said that, the, that their reverence for God mean to the Puritans, reverence for God meant reverence for Scripture. Serving God meant obeying Scripture. To the Puritans, no greater insult can be offered to the Creator than to neglect His written word. There could be no truer homage to him than to prize it and to pour over it and then to live out and give out its teaching. And yet they were not worshiping the scroll that Ezra held in his hand as these people weren't, but rather the God who had given the words of that scroll to Moses and then through Moses to them and to us. A reverence for God's word. And that reverence should inspire awe and respect. 
I don't want to go too crazy with this, but I once heard that one of the most that when a Muslim is around Christians who have Bibles, and when that Muslim sees how we treat this book, just this physical book, it creates great offense, and it makes a stumbling block to ever sharing Christ with them. Because they know we call this our holy book. The Jews and the Christians were known as the people of the book. And yet we throw it on the ground. We'll put other books on top of it. We'll let it collect dust. And for a Muslim, they're going, that's your holy book? If that's your holy book, I, love, I like mine better. Because we don't treat ours like that. It's just a small thing. And, and again, I, it doesn't necessarily reflect our hearts. But the Word of God, without question, as it did with these people at this time, should inspire awe and respect. It is God's Word. Good parents, when they raise their children, they raise them to not talk while I'm talking. Right? Or any other adult. They're teaching them awe and respect. My word is more important than your word. You can just wait here for a little bit. I may have told you when I, one of my earliest memories, the grandkids were asking me yesterday, tell me stories when you, from when you were four, when you were five, when you were six. And I was going, this is going for a long time. And one story I didn't tell them, my parents had taught us to not interrupt them when they were talking. We had finished dinner. We had been dismissed. But my mom and dad were still sitting at the dinner table. I was about four or five years old. And so we, I remembered there were sliced or peach halves that my mom served for dessert, just canned peach halves. And I like peach halves. Got all that syrupy, sugary goodness on them. And, um, and I had already gone and was playing with my siblings and remembered those peaches. And so I went back to the table to ask if I could have some peaches. Mom and dad were talking. I had been instructed, do not disturb us while we're talking. And so while I stood at the end of the table and waited for them to stop talking, my dad kept eating the peaches. And soon all the peaches were gone. And so I went and sat down and started playing with my siblings again. And they remembered, Charlie was just standing here. And so my mom came over and said, Charlie, what did you want? Peaches. <laughs> but the peaches are gone. But I'd learned my lesson well. There is a word which is greater than yours. There is a person who is more significant than you. You are not the most important person in this world. Get over yourself. I wasn't resentful. I just knew. It's the way life is. That's not a bad thing to understand. This is the way life works. And these Israelites are coming back to understanding life doesn't work apart from God's word. His word is the most significant word. Awe and respect. The reading of it clearly should be both private and principally private. We ought to be reading God's word on our own. It should be a life habit. I can't tell you how much. I can't tell you when. That's between you and God. And without, again, sounding legalistic or performance-based, I know Something's wrong with my heart when I do not want to be before God in his word. 
How can I claim to love God and not love His Word? How can I claim to be walking in intimacy with God, and yet this book I've not picked up except to prepare for a sermon or a class in ages? Bible college, we had to read through the book, the, the book, read the whole Bible before we graduated. So that meant four years. It's not, not difficult to do. Four years to read the Bible. I can't tell you how many students were, were doing it in their last semester because they kept putting it off. They're Bible college students, and they hadn't done that. I was only there three years, so I had a little harder time. But this thing, I, th I, I remember this going, it's God's Word. And the bells went off in the dorms, I think it was 6.30, I forget. It was like a fire alarm bell went off, a huge bell, this big, dinner plate size, up on the wall. Gling, 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 gling. I hated that bell. So I was always up before that because I didn't want the bell to wake me up, and I'd get in my shower, <coughs> and then I would read, read God's Word. Problem is, is I don't function real good at that time of the day. And so I'm dutifully reading God's Word, but I'm getting nothing out of it. That's just the truth. And that troubled me. So I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, reading through the Bible before I graduate. Okay, I'm checking that off the list. But God never intended for his word being read to be something we just check off the list. This is the avenue that we enter into fellowship with him. So I discovered about myself the time that I am probably most attentive is after supper. And so I would spend a half hour, go for a walk with the Lord, and go back to my room after my walk and have a half hour of just devotion with God in His Word. Precious times. Precious times. Nobody making me do it. I wanted to because I didn't want anything, I didn't want my heart to drift away from God. We ought to be committed to reading God's Word on our own. But also, there ought to be a sense of community with other believers. We could try to have unity and community around anything else, and it'll be a departure from what is most important. The one thing that should unify us, bind us together, and give us a sense of unity is God's Word. There are lots of other good things. And a good church service is going to have music and it's going to have prayer. Those are excellent things. I don't minimize them. But the most important thing that we unify around should be God's Word. I believe that's one of the reasons that we typically see such great unity from year to year among our students. is because of the Word of God is so central in their lives during that time. So the reading of God's Word should inspire a sense of solidarity and unity. We can say one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. High ideals. I absolutely affirm them. Not possible unless we are unified around God's Word. Will not happen. The reading of God's Word will bring and should bring grief and conviction over sin, both individual and collective. 
It will inspire a sense of personal reproach, remorse, regret, unworthiness, and repentance. In short, it'll bring about poverty of spirit, which is the first beatitude, isn't it? Blessed are the poor of spirit. It's one of the reasons that people have so much trouble with the Sermon on the Mount, and they want to reinterpret it from its plain meaning because you can't read it and take it face value and not go, woe is me. I do not begin to reflect what this is saying. And it brings that poverty of spirit, which is the very entrance into all that Christ wants for us. The reading of God's Word, yes, inspires reproach and remorse and regret and unworthiness and repentance, but it also encourages holiness. We read God's Word as these people did and go, this is wrong, this is not as we should be. And it moves us toward God and His holiness. The reading of God's Word will also cause joy and praise and thanksgiving. It inspires a sense of gratitude. Because yes, God's Word shines its penetrating light on us and exposes our sin, but it also reveals the goodness of God, the mercies of God, the grace of God, the love of God in the face of my sin. The reading of God's Word, this is my fifth point, will motivate conformity and obedience to it. It will inspire a sense of need for God and a desire to not be separated from Him by sin. <coughs> it will inspire a desire and a commitment to live rightly before God and with God. It creates a sense of binding authority over me. The problem is, it's so easy to have God's Spirit working in us and on us through His Word. Woe is me, I am a sinner. God, I see you for all the good that you are. And then so easily step into that flesh, I'm going to do my best for God. And that is the antithesis of everything that He's trying to accomplish in us. We'll see here in this text, in the next chapter or so, even here, where they make a proclamation, we will observe the Feast of Booths. Later on, we're going to make a covenant with God. Nothing wrong with the sentiment, but the means is wrong. I cannot serve God. I cannot fulfill what God desires for me in my own strength. And if Israel is a history of anything, it is a history of covenant after covenant that the people make with God only to break the covenant. And that's why Jesus came, so that he could fulfill in us all that he desires of us. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, retain the standard of sound words. One of the most important things that he had to say to that young man, don't deviate. Don't neglect. We read the book of Hebrews, and there are several warning passages that are in that book. And it's been observed that one says don't is about drifting from God's word. Another is about becoming dull towards God's word. Another is about doubting God's word. Another is despising his word or absolutely defying his word. All of it has to do with the word and how easy it is to begin to drift and deviate from God's word. And in doing so, we're drifting and deviating from God. I came across or 
recalled as I was preparing for this sermon and see this transition that Ezra and Nehemiah were encouraging the people from grief and sadness to joy and celebration. And I thought of a song, and it's taken from Isaiah 61, 1 to 3, <coughs> the last couple verses. But to begin in the context, and Jesus quoted this passage at one point during his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Any of you know that song that we used to sing? I'm not going to try and sing it, but these are the lyrics. Okay, I'd run you out of the room. He gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He calls us trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. You see that transition from grief and mourning, from heaviness to the garment of praise. He calls us trees of righteousness, transient people that are so fickle and unfaithful, trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. Wonderful news. Came across some quotes in my preparation. D.L. Moody, man, that guy could preach. Shoe salesman that God got a hold of and saved and became one of the most famous preachers of, of the, I think it was the 19th century. Preached all over the United States, all over England, um, early 20th century, I guess it was. And he says, D.L. Moody says, I never um, found a useful Christian who was not a student of the Word of God. Wow. Common shoe salesman. I never found a useful Christian who was not a student of the Word of God. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. When he was dying, said, my greatest regret is that I could never find time to read the Bible. Now it's too late. Charles Hodge, famous professor of theology at Princeton University, Princeton Theological Seminary when it was a good seminary. That's really going back a long time. They were celebrating 50 years of his professorship at Princeton. 400 former students came. All the staff and faculty were there. And he stood up to speak and gave very, some very short remarks. But he made this statement about the seminary. I am not afraid to say that a new idea never originated in this seminary. What a good thing to be able to say. We never deviated from the Word of God. We never went chasing after the novel. We went back to the foundational. That's what they're doing here with Nehemiah. They're not asking for a new word. There were prophets at that time. They weren't asking for the prophets to speak. They asked for God's Word to be read. That is a huge difference. So many churches today are focusing on, give me a prophet and give me a prophetic word. And these people are saying, give me the word the foundational word, the unchanging word, the eternal word. Wow. 
I've never read The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. Maybe I should, just to be informed. But in The Communist Manifesto, Marx wrote, all that is solid melts into air. And you know what he was making reference to? Christianity. And all the pillars of Western society. So this quote says, that was the confident boast of Marx in the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto written in 1848. Marx's confidence was, so, was that everything that represented the authoritative pillars of Western society would dissolve in the spirit of modernity and revolution. And that religion, most importantly, Christianity, would dissolve into thin air. The opiate of the people would simply disappear and no one would miss it. Are we seeing the pillars of society dissolve into thin air today? That is the very goal and ambition of Marxism. This quote goes on, the maturation of Christian believers occurs in the context of the church, and the central means is the exposition of the Word of God. God promises to conform believers to the image of Christ through the ministry of the Word. The preaching of the Word, the exposition of Holy Scripture, verse by verse and text by text and book by book, is the means Christ uses to build His church. Christians are formed in the church through the preaching of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit applies that Word to the hearts and minds of believers in a way that no mere, mere, human, ears, mere human means can reach. The priority of expository preaching in the New Testament is building upon the ministry of the Word in the Old Testament, and that's abundantly clear. No one, no one reading the New Testament can miss that. So what is rightly at the center of Christian worship? That's what we're here today to do. We come together to worship. What is rightly at the center of Christian worship, this author asks? The reading and preaching of the Word do you know that's why this pulpit is in the middle? In the old, old mainline denominational churches, the pulpit was not in the middle. The pulpit was on one side or the other. So they'd read from God's Word by one pulpit. They'd preach from God's Word by another pulpit. There are usually two pulpits, one for reading God's Word, one for preaching from God's Word. In the middle were the sacraments. And they're saying that's the most important thing. In the evangelical churches in modern times, we've lined them up. So we've got, usually we'd have the communion table right here. We'd have the, we'd have the preaching, the Word of God, because we're saying these things are held, should be held in balance. But I believe it'd be better to have it simply as we have it today, the Word of God. It is the fundamental, central thing. The reading and preaching of the Word of God is what is rightly at the center of Christian worship. Not music. And I love the music. Sat close to the back this morning. I could hear everybody singing. And what a joy. What a gift. It's part of the sense of community that God's given us. Same thing in our chapel each morning at His Hill. I love to hear the singing. But that is an element of worship. The central thing is the reading and preaching of God's Word. What does God use to build Christian believers into faithfulness? The preaching of the Bible. How is the mind regenerated by God reshaped into alignment with God's truth by the ministry of the Word? Over time, when the Bible is rightly preached, everything needful happens. God uses the preacher to read the text and to explain it. 
to answer every big question of life and to confront every moral issue and deal with every apologetic challenge. This is how Christians are made, and that is how the Christian worldview takes possessions of hearts and minds. I certainly want to see things change politically in this country. And we should, as I've said before, pray that God raises up good, solid Christian men and women to serve in places of office. But even more important is that God raises up men who will preach his word, verse by verse, word by word, without compromise. Every nation needs to hear God's word proclaimed. And this author concludes, and he says, Marx's words about all that is solid melts into air is in contrast with the words of Isaiah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you that your word endures forever. It is eternal. As you are unchanging and you are eternal, the same is true for your word. There's no difference, there's no separation between you and what you have spoken. Thank you, God, that we have stability, certainty. We have a solid foundation in our lives because of Christ and because of your word, which is eternal and unchanging. I pray, God, that you might work in each of us, that there be a greater sense of awe and reverence over the privilege of being people of the book, and that we would not be that in name only, but it would also be the character of our lives, that we would love you and love your word. And if it's just a few minutes a day, but learn, God, to seek you and to come before you through what you have written. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit. We may not have these 13 men and Levites going among us and teaching us, but you've not left us alone. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit who always leads us into what is true. And we have your word, which in every word is truth. Thank you, God, for all that you've given us. We have every reason to rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all would stand and turn in your hymnals to hymn 275. It's hymn 275.